Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at Seven Investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, uh, today we have an exciting episode. As a host of macro concerns continue to weigh on the global economy, the stock market has responded accordingly. The S&P 500 index is currently off 17% from its all-time highs uh, earlier this year, and the NASDAQ composite is down more than 30% from its highs. Uh, Some former market darlings have taken even harder hits and are down well more than 50% from their previous highs. In this episode, I am joined by my 7investing co-lead advisor, Anirban Mahanti, and Alex Morris, the creator of the TSOH Investment Research Service to look at seven such former high flyers. Gentlemen, how are you doing? How's it going? Doing good. Thanks for having us. Of course, yeah. Well, the the market has been very gracious to give us another, a third opportunity (laughs) to review our stock that have been been hammered accordingly. Uh, So, you know, the market's like, you know, and the market gods are listening, uh, you know, it's okay. We don't have to do a fourth show. But uh, we're, tonight, our goal in this episode uh, will be to determine whether the companies we're looking at in this episode have been punished too severely by the market gods, or if they're due for a rebound, or if these stocks will never regain their former heights. In this episode, we'll be looking at Ally Financial, Domino's Pizza, ServiceNow, Five Below, Amazon.com, Tesla, and Netflix. This is our third record rebound episode. So if you like this format, look for our previous previous such episodes in our archive. Are we ready to begin, gentlemen? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So, well, there's, those are the uh, those are the indexes right now, as we can see. I think uh, as anybody listening or watching on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can follow along. We're going to be sharing a lot of graphics and charts and images along the way. But if you're listening, we'll try to describe what we're uh, what we're uh, what we're showing. But like uh, the indexes, as anyone listening knows, have been hammered this year. Uh, our first our first stock we're going to look at though is Ally Financial. Ally Financial is down 44 percent this year, and from its highs. Uh, in, in early January, it's probably down closer to 50%. Uh, its market cap was once like about 18 billion. Now it's under 8 billion. Alex, is Ally Financial a wreck or a rebound? Sure. So, well, once again, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm always happy to do these podcasts and maybe one day we'll do it on, you know, a bunch of stocks that are just up even. They don't have to be up, a lot. up too high. Just, <laughs> yeah, just stocks that are up. Um, but if we cut to the first chart, I think it does a really good job of, of laying out the story. Um, and, you know, you see it in a lot of sectors, obviously, where, where you have COVID impacts and uh, in some cases it was a huge headwind and now it's a tailwind. In other cases it was a huge tailwind. Now it's a headwind. Um, allies an interesting chart where, as you can see here, you know, trailing 12 month earnings were running around $2, $3 as we came through 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Then in, in 2021, you saw a massive step up with earnings uh, reaching a high around, I believe it was 860 a share. 
And what really happened was, is this was a greatly fortuitous environment for Ally, given the nature of their, of their credit book. Um, and I believe it was the second quarter of 21, they had, they had the lowest charge-offs in the history of the business, which dates back over 100 years. So used car prices were going through the roof. And naturally, when you're underwriting against used cars, if prices are going up, uh, even if people are defaulting on the loans, you could actually be better off in some cases if, as a result of that. Um, as you look to, you know, what's coming up now, as we look to the fourth quarter of 22, for anybody who can see the chart, you can see that the trailing 12-month earnings are, are starting to come in pretty significantly. And it's pretty safe to assume that, you know, the roughly $6 of trailing 12-month EPS that you see for the Q4 estimate will, will not be as low as it goes. There's more to fall. And there's a number of factors that are that are playing in here. One is the chart shown here, which is used car prices. Used car prices have started after a significant run, it started to, to come in. You know, the other really important factor is the Fed funds rate has, has started to run higher and very quickly, which for, you know, a bank like Ally, the timing of the repricing of the asset and liability sides of the balance sheet can, can pressure NIMS in the short term, especially when, when rates change a lot very quickly. Um, on top of those two factors, this is a story that's had a lot of share repurchases driving, you know, the per share numbers higher and, as a result of those two headwinds, you're going to see, you know, really uh, lightened activity, at least for the foreseeable future, probably through 2023. Uh, next slide. Yeah, so this shows the charge offs in the credit book. As I was saying a moment ago, you know, saw truly fantastic results in 2021, you know, by far the lowest that, that you've ever seen at the company, or at least in a very, very long time. Um, as you look ahead to the next two years, or finishing out 22 and heading into 23, there's an expectation that we're we're going to revert to something that looks more normal. Um, on top of on top of just a reversion in the environment, it's worth calling out that there's been some loosening of the credit terms, um, most notably in terms of you know the tier that they're writing to do, whether it's prime or subprime, and then also the length of the the car loans. It hasn't been particularly significant, but you've seen it you've seen it stretch out by a number of months in terms of average term. So you know management would argue that. They believe that the risk-adjusted returns justify making this change, but when you incur incremental risk, obviously, when the environment goes against you, you're gonna you're gonna have higher losses. Um, you know, it's worth noting here that, in my mind, as I as I look at the financials, I still think that Ally is is very conservatively uh, positioned in terms of res in terms of reserves, and you know, compared to compared to other auto underwriters, I think they're they're quite a bit more conservative. Granted, it's probably appropriate given the nature of their book, but I don't think they're being aggressive in terms of how they think about the realized losses here. Next slide. Yeah, and this just shows uh, the retail deposits per share. As I noted a moment ago, share buybacks have been pretty significant. The other important part of the story is that Ally has been taking a pretty significant deposit share over the past decade or so. And for me, that's really a major part of the investment thesis, which is there's a component of this story that kind of rhymes with Geico in, in a scenario where things go really well, where they just have a better mousetrap for, for attracting deposits and, you know, running the book basically more efficiently. So uh, yeah, the market is on a basis of something like retail deposits per share. The market is valuing this company very differently than it was a few years ago, but time will tell whether or not that's appropriate. Alex, 
do they break out like i know they like a large part of their their book is is just making these auto loans but you know uh if you if you don't have an auto auto loan with them you might just think like when i see their advertisements at least online it's always for like these high yield savings accounts or you know something like that uh like how much of their book is auto loans like i know it's a huge part of it and i know that's like a big part of it is that like the majority of their business though yeah, in terms of the credit book, auto loans are the majority. And it, just for some history, Ally was basically spun out of GM coming out of the financial crisis. It was their auto lending arm. So this was a lot of, you know, historically, it was, as far as I know, mostly new auto loans. But over time, they've increased the mix or yeah, new. And over time, they've increased the mix of used. Um, to your point on the deposit side, I think that's that's 100% correct. And it speaks to some of the commentary on the call where they were talking about more aggressive, you know, offers for saving savings account rates that they're seeing in the market. And, you know, it's an important reminder, as I wrote in my most recent update to subscribers, there is, there is a component of this business in my mind, that's a little bit different than how your average Wells Fargo or Bank of America customer is going to think about what they're getting paid on their deposit. This is someone who is price shopping isn't the only consideration for whether or not they're going to have an account with Ally, but I think it's a bigger factor than it is again, for just your average U.S. bank customer. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's all online, correct? They don't have like physical branches, right? Am I right there? Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's an online bank. And are the higher interest rates, like how, like for, for most banks, that's like a, a huge net positive, right? I mean, you have your, your net interest margins for, for banks and they they earn more money as, as interest rates go up. Uh, like it's the, it's the same dynamic at play though for Ally with like their huge car loan book? Yeah, I mean, it all depends, right? It depends how it depends how that flushes through on both sides of the book. In theory, you know, if you can keep your deposit betas, meaning as rates go up 100 basis points, 200 basis points, how much you have to take up deposit costs in order, you know, to stay competitive. Um, you know, both sides of the book should reprice over time, and if deposit betas are only at 50% or something, you should be see you should see widening NIMS. Um, as with almost everything in business and investing it's hard to single out that one variable because it starts moving other things. So my short answer is we haven't had to test this theory yet on banks, which I've owned for a while, partly on the theory that NIMS would expand once rates actually normalize over a period of years. Um, we may eventually see whether or not this is true, but I think it might be too early to truly know. Sure. And the PE ratio, I mean, it's insanely low right now, right? Is that just, but that's just on expectations that earnings are going to fall in the, in the years ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, the numbers, you know, when people were quoting it uh, they, at the end of last year saying, hey, you know, this thing has $8 of earnings and it's at 40 bucks or whatever the number was, 30 bucks. That number was never really real. Right. I mean, the normalized number in my mind, I've, I've been writing for you know, at least the past three to six months. Hey, I, I think the number's probably in the $4, maybe the $5 range. So I, I think that's a more realistic way to think about it. Um, you know, and the question will be as always, if, if you can see eight on the, on the good end of the range, you might see some ugly numbers on the bad side of the range. So uh, it might look good at five times normalized, but if you have to own it for a period where it's earning two bucks, <laughs> it's not going to look as cheap in the short term. So you have to really have confidence in terms of that normalized earnings power. Anirban, any questions or? I just have one question. So what happens if as, um, as so used car prices falls, 
right? So like, I mean, used price prices went up because there was like a lack of supply, then used car prices normalized. So that would actually be net negative, right? To the loans that they currently hold because a lot of them could become become impaired, right? Mm -hmm. And people might just say, take my car, um, you know, I'm not paying the loan, for example. But yeah. on the longer term though, like as electric vehicles become more popular, doesn't that, you know, in my mind, theoretically, the gas car prices are basically going to zero, right? So, uh, at, you know, if you have a lot of a loan book that is um, with with these gas cars, does that theoretically mean that you actually have potential impairment maybe five years down the lane? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a very relevant point. This is It's especially relevant for Ally because they came, again, out of this period where Again, they were essentially a captive financier um, to you know certain OEMs, and they've diversified their business over time. And you know now they've started to press more aggressively on diversifying outside of outside of auto as well. So you know I naturally I think they have time to make this transition. Obviously, if somebody you know buys a uh, a gas vehicle today and is going to pay off a loan for the next seven years, that car's probably going to stick around for a while. But yeah, they'll need to make the transition as time goes on. Um, in terms of in terms of pricing, it's it's part of the reason why I like this business and particularly asset class they're they're writing into. It's it's you know it it strikes me as a bit different than homes. Obviously, in terms of being underwater, what the dollar value actually means, it's a lot different to be twenty percent underwater on a five hundred thousand dollar house than it is on a fifteen thousand dollar car in terms of dollars. And you know, as we saw during the financial crisis, this asset class actually performed very well. You know, the other consideration is the duration of the the loan, right? If prices, if the price goes down 15, 20%, but you're two years into paying off a six-year loan, you know, the math there is uh, just different as well. So I think there's certain characteristics about auto that I like, but to your point, I think they, they're continuing to diversify, you know, the credit, the credit book. And I think the market rightly has some questions about how well can you really learn how to do these things. So yeah, it's part of the risk of the business. All right. So the next stock we're going to share is Domino's Pizza. So Domino's is down about 30% this year. Uh, you know, it was down significantly more just a month ago, but it, it's, it's seen a little bit of a rebound uh, the past month. Its market cap was once uh, exceeded $20 billion. It's now about $13 billion. So Domino's Pizza is, uh, full disclosure, I own a a position uh, because of its like franchise and supply chain business model. It's not as simple as every dollar of pizza sold directly translating to a dollar in their corporate offices coffers. Uh, the company oversees about 6,600 restaurants in the U.S., uh, more than 12,000 locations across 90 international markets. Nearly all of Domino's locations, uh, both foreign and domestic, focus exclusively on delivery. Uh, that's approximately two-thirds of sales and carryouts, about one-third of sales. So those are the, which are the two largest segments in the, the quick service uh, pizza category. But all but a fraction of these locations, about 5% are franchisees. Uh, franchisees, they pay a 5.5% royalty fee for on sales, an additional 6% for marketing. More than 95% of U.S. franchisees started as an employee in Domino's locations as an hour, you know, as an hourly employee. And then they, they go to this training course before they're granted franchises. I think that's a real advantage for it. Uh, Domino's uses its company-owned stores. Like I said, they have about 5% they own the stores to act as like a testing ground for new products, 
promotions and technology and believes that operating its own stores makes it a more credible franchisor. Um, so right now, what like why is Domino's down? Like, so I think excluding the negative impact of, of foreign currency, uh, global retail sales grew almost 5% in the last quarter, but on a three-year stack, that's, that's, it's a positive 28%. And, um, and, and so like, I think like that, that, that goes to one of the main problems it has is like COVID, right? Like um, when, so 2020 happens and the world shuts down. And so, but people weren't making every single meal. So they were, they were ordering delivery a whole bunch. And so as they're ordering delivery, uh, you know, domino sales spiked. Um, and they're still kind of going through the impact of that. Like same store sales in the US last quarter was up 2%. But again, on looking at that three-year stack, they're up 18%, which is, you know, that's much better. Uh, carry-out sales, which they're really focusing on lately, is is up almost 20%. And on a three-year stack, they're up 35%. That's important because um, uh, uh, delivery is just much more labor-intensive. And so they're really trying to, like, promote their carry-out sales uh, more. And, and then also, besides, like, so besides their, their comp comparables, being messed up by COVID, it, it's also inflation. Domino's gets hit hard by inflation on three fronts. You have food cost, you have labor cost, and you have fuel. Um, so that's a triple whammy for 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 Domino's that they're they're really taking on the chin right now. But on, on the positive side, the entire industry is taking it taking it on, on the chin too. And relative to its quick service restaurant peers, Domino's is in a much better position to tackle these problems. Their main ingredients for their food is dough, cheese, and tomato sauce, while competitors have to worry about prices for much more expensive items, such as beef, chicken, chicken wings, guacamole, you know, usually almost always some kind of protein, uh, where Domino's, like, they, they can throw, like, uh, you know, a few slices of pepperoni on top of a pizza, but it's really not their main price concern. That gives Domino's a huge advantage on margins. Um, and I actually think, like, they have, uh, they have pricing power. So they've already this year, they've gone uh, earlier this year, about six months ago, they have this, you know, their their uh, promotion, they always do this mix and match deal and it was $5.99. So pick like two items from, you know, this menu of options or pick however many options for this menu of options. And it was $5.99 for each item. So it could be like a medium pepperoni or like their like chocolate, like some kind of dessert or some breadsticks or, or whatever. And they increase that to $6.99. So that's right off the bat. That's like a, a very easy... 16, 17% price hike right there. And then last month, they just did it for their carryout mix and match deal too. Um, it hiked delivery first because it said wage increases are almost always permanent. Whereas like food prices, they're more volatile and they just wanted to see if uh, food prices would come down before raising its prices. Um, but I think that's a very easy price hike because even for the most price conscious customer, paying $6.99 is still... Uh, a really good bargain. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, just for myself, like feeding my family, like it's just by far the cheapest option like we can get that the whole family enjoys. If I go to like Chick-fil-A, it's like $10 for every like value meal we get. So six people in my family times, you know, times 10, that's that's a $60 night. If I get order Domino's in, we can get like, you know, three pepper, three medium pepperoni pizzas. And it's like, we're, we're coming in right in under 20 bucks. So it's a huge, huge price advantage uh, for a value conscious customer. And if times get tough, I think uh, like that'll be even uh, more to, to Domino's advantage. They have a history 
of share this screen real quick. But they have a history of just being like very innovative, especially in the restaurant industry. In 2008, Domino's launched the Domino's Tracker so that customers could see exactly where their order was in the pizza making process. Uh, last year or a couple of years ago, GPS was added to that feature so customers could see their orders for deliveries in progress. Domino's promotes its Anywhere platform. That's N-E-W-A-R-E platform. It works across more than 11 platforms. Uh, it makes ordering a pizza as easy as tweeting a pizza emoji at Domino's or asking Alexa to order a pizza. Uh, in 2017, the company introduced Domino's delivery hotspots. That makes it easy to order pizza to location locations without an obvious address, like a pavilion at a park or a spot on the beach or like a place, you know, on a college campus, like the, you know, the 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 student union at at the college or or the campus greens. Uh, to date, more than two hundred thousand hotspots have been added to its database. Uh, it also, like as far as its brand goes, like you know, whenever I talk about Domino's, people talk like how much they hate the pizza or whatever, or talk about how much like they like some other kind of pizza better. And, and, and to that, it's like, of course, of course there's pizza that's better, right? This isn't, this should never be compared to a, uh, a nice Italian restaurant with a brick oven or something like that, where I might take my wife out on a, on a date night, but their brand, uh, you know, I, I think there is still something to it. It has more than 20 29 million active users for its rewards program. Uh, I believe that's more than any other quick service restaurant, but don't quote me on that. Uh, more than any other restaurant, uh, even more than McDonald's or Starbucks, more than 75% of Domino's orders in the US are now placed uh, digitally, which is a huge advantage, right? Because the more orders that like come in electronically, that's less time somebody has to be spending at the restaurant, manning the phone, writing down the order, you know, and, and things like that. So you're just taking out manpower, which just cuts their cost even more, gives them more of an uh, advantage. And, and, and finally, like uh, they're, the return on invested capital is, is, is just incredible. Uh, you know, look, I'm obviously, I'm showing a chart right now that like uh, shows a, a few companies, uh, some in their industry and some not, just as, as points of comparison. And, uh, you know, this obviously is not far from like exhaustive list, but like their return on invested capital, like Apple has a, on this X axis is return on invested capital, the Y axis, the PE ratio, just as a, a simple valuation metric, but the return on invested capital is over 50%. And, and that's actually down a little bit from the last couple of years. It, it was it was, it was was in the mid 50 percentiles for a, a long time. You know, Starbucks is 46%. Chipotle is 36%. Uh, Papa John's is like 23%. McDonald's is like 20, 21% just as comparables. But even like over companies like Visa, Microsoft, Google, it's return on invested capital. It's really, really incredible. Um, I, I really like this company. I, I like I said in the beginning, I, I own a position, and I think uh, it's positioned to do well, whether the economy goes bad or 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 recovers. Well, I was going to say that you know you, I can never dislike a company that shows two uh, Apple iPhones and an Apple uh, Watch in the screen of where they're using technology. <laughs> so that and they're just behind Apple in terms of you know return on invested capitals. But you know, I'll tell you the only thing I was going to say is every year I look at this company and I think, how can this company grow its same store sales? How many more pizzas can people have? How many more stores can you have? And the answer always seems to be more. I don't know how it happens, but the answer always seems to be more. So well, the do, international market. Do you not, 
yeah okay, i'm sorry keep going keep going no 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 but like so so and domino's has a weird like so domino's there's a listed version of domino's here in the australian market and i always thought that the domino's market in australia is for example very saturated but it this company still throws five six seven there are years when it does like eight percent same store sales i just do not understand you know how that happens how many more pizzas can people have so just help me understand that well, so what's great about pizza, like it's cheap, right? Like I already talked about that. It's cheap. It's uh, very versatile. So you can go internationally and uh, like in their 10K, they talk about like some of their their more exotic pizzas in, in different places. And uh, like, you know, it's like a, I don't even want to say it, but like in Korea, they have this like octopus bomb pizza or something. And, you know, in uh, India, they have like a corn and cheese pizza, you know? So it's just a very versatile food. Like it basically just dough, a sauce and a topping, right? And maybe some cheese, right? That's all you need. And that's, that, 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 that I mean, from my, from my thinking that that probably translates pretty well uh, across the global market. And it's really like going back, like I can't emphasize this enough. It's really cheap. If I'd go to Chick-fil-A or McDonald's or, you know, any other place with my family of six and we all get like value meals, that's, that's, that approaches $10 a value meal. Whereas Domino's, you know, six ninety, which is after their price increase, six ninety nine for a medium pepperoni. I can get two or three of those and feed my entire family. My kids love it. It's it's not the healthiest food, granted, right? It's not the healthiest food, but neither is any fast food. And uh, you know, and and granted, like yes, I've had better meals, right? But it's 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 edible enough to to get the job done. And like with their anywhere program, like you know, they really, really, really they sell affordability. And they sell convenience, right? So this anywhere, the hotspots, like all that stuff, it's just to like make it take any friction out of ordering pizza. Like they even have this zero click app um, where you just click the app and your saved order is saved at your favorite, your 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 uh, preferred store and it starts a timer. And then when the timer goes off, it just automatically orders that that order it. And like my wife, like we, we, we've moved and I've told this story before, but on her commute, she knew exactly where to hit that button. And the, so that when on her way home, she, she passed the Domino's close to her house and she would stop and she would just pick up the pizzas and keep going, you know, like on a Friday night, uh, you know, and she could do that in traffic because she doesn't have to look at her phone. She just hits that button. It's, it, they just keep thinking even during COVID when they did the, the, the car side pickup, right? So lots of places now you go, like I can go to a Pizza Hut or Papa John's and I place an order on an app and they'll bring it out to my car. But when you go to Domino's, you, you hit that you're there, uh, you know, given if it's like they say be here in 15 minutes. So as long as it's after 15 minutes, you, you hit the button that you're there and it starts a two minute timer. And if they're not out there with your pizza within the two minutes, they give you a coupon on your next order. You know, just little things like that make, uh, make a big difference. And I've never gotten a coupon, by the way. You know what I mean? I just know, but I know if I go to Domino's, they're going to get me out that pizza in two minutes, which is just like the, those kinds of things uh, make a big mm -hmm. difference. You know, that affordability and that convenience. Yeah, my question, my question is basically about that exact point. It seems, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe even tell the story because it's a pretty good one. It's about 10 years ago now that they made kind of a switch in their marketing, and it was obviously very successful well-known tech, tech investments, reduced friction, cheap prices, as you've said, it seems like they've consistently hit on things that really matter to customers. Has there been any corresponding response from Pizza Hut, Papa John's, you know, the major players, or are they, are they just kind of lagging? No, I, I wouldn't say they're lagging, is what I would say. I wouldn't say they're not doing anything, right? But Domino's, 
just always seems not even like a step ahead, but like two or three steps ahead. Um, they're just terrific operators. Uh, like I said, their loyalty program with 29 million members. Like, how do they have more than McDonald's? How do they have more than Starbucks? Like, that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me, right? It, it, it doesn't any it doesn't make any total sense to me. Uh, you know, like that that Domino's would have more than those kinds of restaurants, but they do. Um, and uh, you know, like <laughs> if you had bought this at the the depth of the financial crisis, like I mean, I could tell the whole story, but like it would be even with its price drop now, it'd be over a hundred bagger, right? So uh, it's just uh, it just uh, has done an, an incredible job. And like one other quick point, but like to their competitors. A lot of times, pizza, Papa John's, what they try to do is like they'll they'll introduce like some exotic item, right? Like on the uh, on the menu. Like so now, like Papa John's has Shaquille O'Neal involved, so they have the shakaroni pizza, or like Pizza Hut did like thirty different kinds of crust you could order on your pizza and things like that. Domino's doesn't do that. The only times it'll do a menu innovation is to see if it if it could, if it's a possibility to be permanent like a permanent addition to the menu. They want a very simple menu where you just order like your, you know, uh, your, your basics on the pizza. They don't want to do like the crazy, like pretzel crust stuffed with cheese and, you know, the, you know, some weird topping that they're not going to do permanently. They want it to be simple um, so they can focus on speed and, and, and convenience. Hmm. And what was the, what was the, do you remember the marketing campaign they did? Just because it's funny. Didn't they basically trash their own pizza? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, this is how we go over on our time guys. Sorry. (laughs) This is important. This is important. So, so um, back in 2008, uh, you know, you have the financial crisis going on. So everything's being hit anyways. And uh, uh, like um, Domino's pizza was like, you know, a new CEO comes in and Domino's is just being destroyed online for like their their horrible tasting pizza they still scored very well with convenience and delivery and all things like that but their pizza was just getting destroyed uh so 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 they come in with their marketing and they basically did this like apology tour right and like they they have videos of them going up to these people who left really negative reviews online say hey we sell that you gave us one star and you hated our pizza and you said it tasted like cardboard try our new pizza right and they have the cameras rolling there and it's all very like you know, like edgy commercial and they go up and the new people try it. And of course they love it. Right. And, and uh, you know, but they basically apologize. They're like, Hey, we're sorry. We sucked for so long. Take us back America, you know, and then off to the races from that point on, if you had the bot to stock right when they launched that campaign, I mean, you're, you're very rich right now. Nice. All right. And nearby our next stock is service now. ServiceNow is down 42% this year. Its market cap has gone from, let's say, $135, $140 billion to $81 billion. So it's taken a substantial hit. Anirban, is ServiceNow a record rebound? Well, like, you know, ServiceNow is like, uh, I sort of think, you know, if you think about software as a service and you think about like some of the blue chip software as a service, Companies, standalone software as a service companies, then, you know, well, the biggest one of them is Salesforce. And then, um, you know, the next really, the big one is, is ServiceNow. And this is really a story of organic growth. Um, and, and, you know, what they really do really well is you, I sort of think of them as the integrating glue. So they automate things for people, you know, automate HR workflows, automate IT, you know, service management workflows, 
you know, automate, um, you know, a lot of ERP things. So, so the automation by integrating with other applications is is really their bread and butter. And they've done a fabulous job of this over the years. It's it's never been a high fly in terms of growth. You know, it does a steady, you know, 20, 25, you know, maybe 30% revenue growth. It throws off a lot of cash and, you know, operating cash flow, operating, you know, um, uh, profit margins in the high 30%, you know, or the 30% or so. So the, the only explanation really I have for like, if almost every other company has taken a taken a hit. Every growth company has taken a hit. The multiples have come down, but the multiple for this one now is you know uh, it's it's gone down to like what ten times sales or something like that, because it's projected to do probably seven and a half eight billion maybe next year in sales, eighty billion. So call it that 10, 11 times um, in, in sales. It it's always enjoyed a bit of a premium, which you know in the higher interest rate environment maybe it doesn't deserve. And so, you know, you could justify it being okay, but the company has executed really well through the, uh, through, through the tightening of IT budgets, you know, they seem to be doing just fine. Um, the biggest headwind for this company right now is a foreign exchange. You know, that, you know, it's, that's been the headwind story for a lot of big tech companies. That's the story here as well. Um, you know, so constant currency growth looks really solid. Uh, you know, it's getting close to 30%, but you know, you're, you're, you're facing, 500 basis points, 600 basis points, 700 basis points of uh, FX headwind. So that's been the story. But, but you know, if you go to the next chart, uh, or the, the only chart I included is like, if you look at the history of this company, you know that free cash flow margin, right? You know, it, it bounces around. So that really depends on how cash is coming into the company and how cash is going out. You know, typically the last two quarters of the year are when sort of, you know, they have a lot of cash generation happening. but but you know, uh, settling somewhere around an average of you know that twenty five thirty percent generate converting twenty five thirty percent of the revenue to free cash flow uh, is pretty awesome, uh, and you know I don't see how this stops right, and it's been free cash flow positive for a long long time now, and it's just become bigger. It's got a very big uh, book of uh, remaining performance obligations. Um, if you're looking for like a SaaS company, a software as a service company, what is a company which is a blue chip style company selling for a decent, uh, you know, uh, valuation, this is it. This is, this is the company to look at. Um, yeah. And, uh, it's got Bill McDermott now leading the company, which is really good. Um, you know, it's flamboyant and it's got a great CFO. Why is the free cash flow so cyclical like that? Why is it so uh, volatile? Well, it's, it's you know, so cash flow would depend on how much, you know, you're generating cash, you know, from operations, right? So that would depend on a lot on the billing cycle, right? So if, you know, depending on when the bills are issued, that's when the cash is coming in through the door. So, like, I have a position in in, in service now. Um, actually, a, a fairly a fairly large position. It's it's a top ten position for me, and it's, it's a platform just seems so incredibly sticky, right? I mean, that's like that. What what I always look for in software, like, it just seems like the more there are platform rather than like just a single app, like they can get yeah. very sticky very fast, and they don't lose those customers, which come leads to pricing power and all kinds of other good things. Uh, like, what do do yeah. they? I, I haven't 
looked at them too recently, though. It, do they talk about their churn rate or, or where it's at? That's a great question. So, yeah, so like, yeah, like you about, I've had this for a while. This is, this is not a shoot the lights kind of company, but it's a decent, it's like a market beater over the long term by a decent margin. It's, you know, uh, so, and the churn rates are very low. Part of the magic here is, is exactly as you said, right? So it's a platform that is basically a glue for all these minor different applications that people use and automation of those tasks. Once you build this into your workflow, it's very difficult to undo, right? Uh, so, you know, so they're sort of riding the cloud wave, the application wave, the digitization wave. They're like, you know, if you want to ride those waves, this is like a, this is almost like the picks and shovels company for that sort of wave. And, uh, you know, churn rates, it, it, it's one of the few companies that actually provides the actual churn rate for customers. It's like, you know, it's like 1% maybe in some years. It's like between, their retention rate is between 98 and 99%. Uh, that and has been historically that, so and that is pretty phenomenal. And part of the reason is again that, and the other reason is that you know they have basically got enterprise scale customers, right? So it's not they don't have a lot of companies that see higher churn rates are the ones that serve a lot of SMBs. So those small clients, those businesses tend to go out of business. They have to do a lot of cost cutting. You know, if you're serving, uh, you know, so last quarter, for example, they had a 250 million deal, you know, I might, this number might be correct or incorrect, it's off the top of my head, um, from the US federal uh, government, right? I, I mean, you know, like those sort of deals are huge, like 250 million deal. Um, and once you're in embedded, it's unlikely that you're gonna be cut off. So that's the, I think the story well, that, the that's, you know, very not, strong. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, the, so the, just you're incredibly sticky in, and, and it's just value proposition and they're very innovative. They keep innovating, basically going from one service line to another. So they started off as IT service management, sort of moved into HR, you know, now moving into sort of microservices and all, you know, so basically slowly but steadily finding this word. So the land and expand really works well. Uh, in, in this sort of situation. So again, just steady execution, good execution, low amounts of dilution. You know, if you think of stock-based comp, then, you know, they're looking at basically keeping a dilution at about 1%, um, you know, which which is sort of maybe acceptable if you're growing at that sort of 20.5% rate uh, and you're cutting a lot of the revenue to the cash flow. I didn't realize the share-based compensation was that low. I actually thought it was higher for them. So, interesting. No, but it's a pretty big. It's a pretty big company, right? So this, this is, right. yeah. So it's a pretty big company, but its revenues is pretty large. Its remaining performance obligation is also large, right? I think the share-based comp is a problem for young companies, um, you know, which temporarily had very high valuations and multiples, and therefore could afford a lot of stock-based comp. And in this current market where they mark, you know, if they've lost 80% of their value, then they have a problem, right? But this, you know, is a different story, I think, for the larger companies and their stock-based comps. So it's very, it's, uh, I think it's it's reined in quite a bit. And they know that they need to rein, in, rein it in further. So they've, you know, always made sure that they don't overdo it. So the same stock-based comp as Snap, it just has 10 times the market cap. <laughs> <laughs> Probably in dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, just, just a story for a lot of the a lot of companies, right? I mean, if you you know the, the stock based comp that you can do at forty billion market cap, you can't do the same 
stock-based cap comp at eight billion market cap, even if your revenue is larger, because the dilution would just kill you, right? And and it's it is strange when a lot of CFOs just do not understand that. I mean, it should be pretty obvious, but you know, I would think that would be one of the things that a CFO understands, but a lot of CFOs seem to not understand it. <laughs> Alex, any questions or? No, I think it sounds that my, my question is why have I not looked at this sooner? But I guess the stock's down, which is why we're talking about it. So I need to do the work. <laughs> actually, yeah, I, I actually think it's a, it's an interesting one. I, I like it. I personally like it better than Salesforce for those like, you know, really large tech companies, but not quite a mega cap yet. It's not acquisitive as acquisitive. So it's a very, it's a lot of the growth is basically organic. Whereas for Salesforce, you have to sort of account for the fact that Salesforce is very acquisitive, which makes looking at its numbers really difficult and understanding sort of, you know, how its comp base is growing and everything. So, yeah, this is a this is a very unlike Anirban company, and this is a more Alex and Matt style company. <laughs> I would say. Sure. All right. So let's move on. Let's talk about five below. But Alex, first, uh, we're looking at a lot of like uh, when you when you go through your companies, we always look at these really cool graphics and images you share. Uh, where can people find more of those types of graphics? Sure, I should disclaimer real quick too, because you said it on one of the names. I own I own Ally and I own Netflix, which we're going to talk about. I do not own Five Below, so just for for complete disclosure or transparency. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I, sh I share all of my work through, as you said before, the TSOH Investment Research Service. Which, long story short, I I worked as a buy side analyst for about ten years, and I decided to leave in April 2021 to launch this service, and I provide, you know, a write-up every Monday and every other Thursday. And essentially what it is, is complete transparency into my research process and how I invest all my savings and anytime I make changes in the portfolio, et cetera. So I, I cover companies like Airbnb, Netflix, Ally, Berkshire, Microsoft, uh, and, and many, many others. So it's just a complete, completely transparent view at, at how I think about investing and what I do as an analyst. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about Alex, uh, you can search our podcast. And like my first interview with them, I think you were just launching your service, Alex. And uh, we talked about your investment philosophy and things like that. So, so be sure to check that out. Uh, five Below, the retailer, it's down about 30% this year, was down over 40% earlier this year, but it has rebounded a, a little bit. Its market cap is now $8.5 billion. It was over $12 billion earlier. Alex, is Five Below a wreck or a rebound? Yeah, so Five Below is a really interesting company. Um, you know, just speaking to a moment ago, the, the companies that I followed, retail tends to be one area that I, I focus in on a decent amount. And there's, there's certain pockets of retail that I really like. Um, you know, Costco and DG are two examples. Uh, Dollar Tree is another one. And Five Below has a certain part of it that strikes me as, as similar to an early Dollar Tree. And for those who don't know, uh, Five Below is a retailer that focuses on selling products for $5 or less. They're, they're experimenting a little bit with something called a Five Beyond, which pushes the price, price points a little bit higher, but generally $5 or less. And they really target uh, teens and tweens. And you know, there, there's a great interview that I linked to in my deep dive with one of the co-founders. And he talks about how they basically saw a, a gap in the market that wasn't being served. And, and Five Below has, has since proven that they have a model that can serve uh, that market. Um, you know, it's a name that for a long time generated a lot of sales growth through through a combination of comps and, and also aggressive new units. And 
they continue to have the posture of, of adding a lot of units, as we'll show in a second, um, but, but they're dealing with some um, COVID tailwind and potential hangover, as, as I'll jump into. So let's go to the next slide. Yeah, so this is the store count for five below. As you can see, they, you know, they reached 1,000 units in 2020, which was 18 years after the company was founded. Uh, the projection that management has, has put out publicly has them reaching over 2,000 by 2025. So 18 years to build 1,000 stores, four years to build the next 1,000 stores. So it just speaks to the, you know, the aggressive expansion of this business. Next slide. Here's the margin profile by year. As you can see, you know, 2020 was, was impacted by COVID. Obviously, they were closed for a period of time. Uh, 2021, a really nice rebound. You had stimulus payments. You had, you know, generally favorable macro. Now we're into 2022, which is where uh, things are starting to get really interesting as they are with uh, other retail names. And I, I think, you know, this week, the Target conference call was a great example of, you know, Walmart is, in my mind, pretty similar to DG, which I own. It's, it's, it's more of a grocer than anything else. It's selling food and Bev and it's selling consumables. And that's really a huge part of the mix. That's certainly less true at Five Below and, and, and Target. And, you know, I think 22 is going to be a really interesting year. Next slide. Yeah, this shows five below's EPS by year, which uh, basically shows an EPS form, what I was just saying, which is this business had a huge tailwind in 2021 with EPS at five bucks, which was you know up from $3 basically in 2019. Now in 2022, the current management estimates at $4.40. It should be noted that at, at the start of the year, they were at around 540, I believe. They cut after the first quarter call to, I believe around 490. And they cut again after the second quarter call to the current 440. Um, you know, as I've been, I've been tweeting here recently, some of the comments from Target, you know, Target started the year with the idea that they were going to have 8% plus operating margins. And now as we head into the fourth quarter, the number's closer to three and change, which is obviously, you know, a massive hit to operating income down 50% versus kind of expectations. I'll be, I'll be very curious to see when, when five below reports here in a couple of weeks, what they're seeing relative to guidance. I don't know if you have another slide or not. Yeah, this just shows the the kind of the EPS slide that we've seen here as of late. Um, you know, I never want to never want to be overly focused on short term numbers. I think this is a very interesting concept, and as I as I wrote about here recently, I think there's there's reason to believe that this has a unit count uh, opportunity over time that is you know beyond the the TJ Maxx, Marshalls, those kind of names, which are in the fifteen hundred to two thousand unit range. Call it. Um, I don't know if it ever gets to Dollar Tree, which is closer to 8,000, but I think there's a path to, to 3,000 plus here. So could be a very interesting story given the unit economics, but uh, in the short term, I think there's potentially more messiness ahead. So I, I, I love this company. I, I, I've never had a position in it, but uh, I, I think it does a lot of things right. And it's like COVID just messed up so many things, right? I mean, just investment wise and not talking about like obviously the the horrible uh everything else but uh just like the growth comps i mean like you see it, it jumped to like if you had said in in 2019 hey we're going to be at four dollars and 40 cents eps by 2022 that would have been terrific guidance and all of a sudden you know but because they had five dollars in 2021 now it's like you know every you know same store sales are down or you know and or whatever else and you see that just over and over again with so many of these companies um you know, I, I like Five Below. Like you said, they really do target the teen and tween audience, which is like 
great for their price point. Like I have like between tweens and teens, I have three in my house and uh, like uh, five below is, is uh, definitely when they're just living on, on an allowance, that's our, like their, their, their favorite store, right? Like they just love to go to five below the room decorations or, or candy or toys. Uh, and uh, you know, and five below does such a good job at capitalizing on those like stupid trends that like catch a big wave, like the fidget spinners, like, you know, four, five years ago were a big hit and, you know, you would go in five below and they'd be everywhere. Now it's like the squish mallows or those like snuggly, like cuddly, you know, I, I don't know if I say it right, but squish mallows are everywhere. Like that was a big trend and they were, you know, they're everywhere in the store and uh, they, they just, they, they do a lot of things right. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, on the first point, I think it's as it relates to, you know, where the numbers are today versus where they were a couple of years ago. I, I, in the most recent update I wrote, my short-term concern is that five below experienced huge business tailwinds throughout the pandemic with two-year stack comps at 25%, up 25%. Will those gains prove sustainable? And if not, what does the path to normalization look like timing and magnitude? And, you know, as Target is showing right now, magnitude can be a lot bigger than you, you think it may be. Again, it's one year potentially or two years, but it's, you know, just thinking through that in terms of how you, how you value a business. And, you know, to the other point, it's one of my favorite things about retailers following them as an investor is you can walk in the store and, and really get a feel for, for what it is in a way that, you know, it might be a lot harder to do, obviously, if you don't work in a large enterprise and you're, and you're seeing the software, for example, it's just when you walk into a dollar tree and really understand what it is relative to a Publix or a CVS or a Dollar General to the extent that they're ever in the same market, which is relatively rare. Um, you know, same goes for Five Below. To your point, I'd encourage people who live in the U.S. just walk into one and see what see what the the product assortment looks like and, and look at how people are shopping the store. And you can start to appreciate how this is potentially a defensible niche that they've dug out for themselves. So, like you, I I like the company a lot. Um, it's not a name I've ever owned. I've probably followed it for a handful of years now. Um, there's a price where I'd make a move. We're not there yet. I think it's at like, I'm just looking at Morningstar. It's like 35 times earnings now. Where uh, theoretically, where would where would you start really considering it? I mean, the, yeah, the question is, is that 440 number, I think I, I wrote this exactly in my article, you know, it's management has this view of, of baselining in 2022 and then returning to this strong double digit growth trajectory. And the question is, you know, what is 2022 going to be, first of all? And is that actually a path that we're going to grow off of? And I think it's tough with a lot of these retailers to, to actually nail down that question. It's part of the reason, honestly, why I've, I've been invested in Dollar General for a while now. And, and one of my early comments on it was, I think that the COVID tailwind followed by hangover is going to be played out differently there than it is in a lot of other names. And I feel much safer with kind of the normalized profitability in this business. And I get a little bit scared on what I see other places. Now, I didn't, I didn't foresee that Target's operating margins would go from 8% to 3 to 3%, but it's kind of generally speaking what I was concerned about. And they just have certain dynamics to their business that make me less scared. You know, the deep dive I wrote on Five Below was titled, We Sell Stuff That Nobody Really Needs. It was a quote from the co-founder. And it's true. But they're competing, in, they're, competing in, <laughs> they're competing in discretionary <laughs> categories. And a lot of their customers, you know, the air quotes income is allowance from their parents. And if times get tight, those are categories that could struggle. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to see how these Q3 results look in a couple of weeks and, and also how management's thinking about the end of the year and, and what life looks like as they head into 23. 
Nirvan, any questions? Uh, I don't have any on this is retail beyond my uh, pay grade. Okay. <laughs> They sell fidget spinners. Come on. <laughs> you have kids. You have kids. <laughs> but like, I guess they don't have any in Australia. So it, we'll give no. you a pass. They'll, get, they'll, they'll try to get there someday. <laughs> All right. So the next company we're going to discuss is Amazon. I don't think I really have to go through what this company does. Uh, so just real quick, uh, it's it's down almost 50% this year, which if you had told me at the beginning of the year, like I just would not, I don't think I would have believed you uh, that it was down this much. It's market cap is now, you know, it was approaching $2 trillion for a while and now it's under $1 trillion. So it's definitely seen uh, a huge hit. Uh, it's net sales this last quarter. They're still up 15% uh, for $127 billion. Uh, that, you know, there was a $5 billion unfavorable impact from year-over-year exchanges and the foreign exchange rates. Uh, otherwise, net sales would have been up 19%. Uh, but it's not revenue. That's like was the problem. It's operating income was down almost in half to $2.5 billion. Free cash flow decreased to an like to negative, basically, you know, an outflow of $20 billion where, you know, 12 uh, over the tra trailing 12 months, and the previous trailing 12 months, it was an inflow of almost $3 billion. So that, that's, uh, that's obviously a concern. Uh, they said uh, for the full year 2022, they expect to incur approximately $60 billion in capital investments. Um, that's uh, a bit of a reduction in its fulfillment and transportation capital investments, but that's offset by additional investments in its technological infrastructure for AWS. Um, so like, is, is there good news? Like I, I would say, uh, so full disclosure, this is my largest position. Uh, AWS sales increased $20.5 billion. That was up 28% uh, year over year. That now represents an annualized sales run rate of $82 billion. We'll, we'll look at the margins for that in one second. Uh, one of the things that, that happened though, like Amazon saw like an uptick in AWS customers, like really focused on controlling cost. And uh, Alec, you probably... I'm sure you read through the Microsoft conference call and it like, I mean, they were like, uh, and, and in Nearbond, we, we did a previous podcast on Azure and AWS and like the, the comments from both conference cultures are so similar about customers really uh, focused on controlling costs and how like AWS was proactively working to help customers uh, optimize for cost. Um, and so I think, so here's a quote, uh, but basically this is a quote from the CFO. But basically what we see is customers are looking to save money versus their committed spend. We have options for them to do that. They can manage workloads better. They can switch to lower cost products that have different performance profiles. They can switch to Graviton chips that have higher cost performance ratios. So all really good things for the customer and for Amazon long-term. And then, so then he, he keeps going, talking about the benefit of cloud computing. You know, you can give customers, like you can turn what used to be a fixed expense into a variable expense. And that's really how cloud has been advertised for the last 10 years. So I think it is good in the long term that AWS and, and Azure like are, are following through on that right now as we're seeing more macro uncertainty. Uh, but in the short term, they're seeing like demand drop. So just like looking at the numbers real quick. Um, so if you're looking for us, like their online sales, their online store sales grew 7%. Uh, year over year. That's 13% if you exclude the impact from 
the the foreign uh, foreign exchange rates. Uh, you know, that's that's at fifty four billion dollars. But everybody always talks about the low margins that the online stores have and and how much money is going out the door, especially this last quarter internationally. But why I just continue to believe in this company, like the capex they spent on the fulfillment centers and the logistics, and to get this delivery down to like. Uh, for for now, a lot of items that I order uh, where I live, it, it's 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 same day or or next day. Uh, in fact, like you know, like I I, I gave this anecdote the other day. Um, so forgive me if you already heard this, but like my my son order asked me to order something for him on Amazon the other day, and and I did. And when he you know that morning, and when he came home from school, he's like, "Where's my package?" And you know, whatever it, it was getting there the next day. But like like the expectation I think for young consumers is like why isn't it here yet? You know, and, and like, we're like, I consider that like a, a miracle, a modern day infrastructure. Like I think younger consumers are just going to expect that. And around their online stores, uh, their third party seller services, that was up, uh, you know, excluding foreign currency, that was up 23%. Subscription services, basically Amazon Prime was up 14% to $9 billion. Advertising services, which is almost exclusively around their online stores, that is now almost $10 billion. Uh, that's basically half of AWS. And that grew uh, 30% year over year, excluding foreign impact. Last year in the third quarter, it grew 52%. So even lapping these huge comps from a year ago, it's still growing at an incredible rate. And then of course, look, you, have, you still have AWS, which grew 28% to $21 billion. So I just think, uh, you know, like a few quarters ago, they basically said, like, look, we we overspent on uh, CapEx on some of these fulfillment centers. We overbuilt. We saw the demand like just spike for COVID. And we we thought that demand might be a little more permanent than it ended up being. It turned out to be it was a little elastic. Uh, basically, I mean, like right now, I think every company in my portfolio made some kind of mistake during COVID uh, about demand and, and lapping its growth rates and, and things like that. Um, Amazon was no exception to that. But it's not like we can uh we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to Netflix but like the comparison I make like when Netflix spends on a show and it's a bomb uh I just feel like well was that worth it the capex the capex to me is kind of a, the, the the money they spent on that show, show or movie like I feel like it's just gone uh but when you spend on a fulfillment center it's there it's a real physical asset uh it's there forever and I do believe e-commerce demand will continue to rise um and, uh, you know, I don't think Amazon's going away and they have all these fixed costs, cost, and eventually that's going to leverage into a lot of free cash flow. At least that's what I think. I'm, uh, yeah, so I want to share this out. Oh, go ahead, Alex. Go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're good. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll just, just to, uh, you know, be less bullish because I personally own the shares in this company. So my, I think my thinking now, I've just, so, and it's very, I've, I've had such conflicted feelings about Amazon. Um, you know, the way I sort of, I think the valuation cut that they've got is partly deserving because when a company, which is like a two, almost a $2 trillion market cap company does not produce free cash flow, and then the market's got to say, well, you know, if you can't consistently produce free cash flow, then what are you worth, right? We can't really evaluate its worth. At its peak, free cash flow, it only produced $25 billion of free cash flow. 
right? Oh, that's peak free cash flow that I have seen, 25 or $26 billion, right? Um, so there's something there about their cost structure. And we can say that, well, it's just pushing the free cash flow into the future. But for a company of this size, the future should be now. And the two problems that I see, I think, is, and again, this might turn out to be premature speculation because, you know, maybe there are these, you know, this intermediate costs that they're taking because of the COVID demand that they've seen um, and, and therefore maybe they're overcommitted. But the, like, I mean, the cloud infrastructure, the infrastructure level, I think there's more competition. And because of more competition, I think there's more, I guess, you know, let's build more data centers, let's build new, you know, hardware, and that's pushing the cost up there. And with more competition, if you think like, you know, Oracle wants a piece of it, Google wants a piece of it, Microsoft wants a piece of it. Ultimately, I think it just causes some pricing pressures and therefore reduces margins. I think the other thing I'd say is that I think if Amazon wanted to be consistently free cash flow positive, maybe one of the things is it could just jettison its international sales, uh, you know, Amazon international. And it maybe it'll actually become a more, um, um, you know, more of a you know consistent free cash flow because that international business really has been a drag for a long, long time, right? And you know, the question to ask maybe is it worthwhile or not? So uh, I don't know. I feel a little bit mixed. And as I said, I've owned shares for a long time. I've not added recently, but I just feel like. I want to see them generate consistent free cash flow, which would be really nice if they can do. It doesn't have to be a lot. Like, you know, just to put contextualization here, right? I mean, Apple is at 2.5 trillion or 120 billion, 112 billion dollars of free cash flow. Right? So that, I mean, the, the free cash flow difference between, you know, between say Apple and then Google and then Amazon is like huge. So, um, you know, there's a reason why I think it's been, you know, it's been shellacked. And I think this is something that they're probably addressing with cost cuts and things like that. They've tried too many things. They don't need to try too many things, you know, like you know, having 10,000 people on Alexa, like, I mean, that's really stupid. Uh, you know, having so much investments on devices, like you're not a device company. Don't spend so much money on devices. You really don't need them. So I think those sort of cost cuts and a little bit more rationalization, I think would, would help. So I'm hoping Jesse does the right thing and you know brings the cost under control and therefore generates free cash flow. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you guys have said. I, I have basically one comment from two different angles. I mean, on the, on the one end, that's really positive for Amazon, I think in some ways is, you know, you look at what Walmart's done over the past, decade or so. I mean, it's a company that generates 600 billion in revenue a year, something like that. They've taken a material hit to EBIT margins over the past decade, largely as a result of going after e-commerce. They built a fairly decently sized e-commerce business in the US. It's around 40 or $45 billion a year, I think. But kind of to Matt's point, I just really struggle how they ever get to the point where the mind share that, that Amazon has built and the expectations they've set for customers. It's just so hard to compete with that. And I have all the respect in the world for Doug McMillan at Walmart. I think he's done a fantastic job. It's just very, very difficult. And their reticence to give any real numbers as far as I've seen around something like Walmart Plus, the subscription service probably in some ways kind of speaks to that. It's just such a tough hand. On the other, on the other side of the argument though, to the Nearbond's point, you know, testing and experimenting and doing other things certainly has merit 
at some level, but Amazon does spread themselves pretty thin. And I, you know, I'm somewhat biased in this because I own media, but I, I look at some of the dollar amounts that they're spending on, on video, whether it's, you know, entertainment programming or for example, spending a billion dollars on the NFL and, you know, ratings are down very, very significantly from what they were when they were on linear. And I just wonder at times if whether or not solely focusing on the value proposition that, you know, you're talking about with your son when he orders that package, if, if it can get spread too wide, but not to say that I'm totally against the things they've done there, but I do think that is part of the risk to this business that you potentially lose focus and you start adding things that maybe don't actually add a ton of incremental value for customers, but you're charging for on prime at the end of the day. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of places we can look for like where they can cut costs, but that almost makes me like, uh, I just think there's, I guess, a, a lot of uh, low hanging fruit there, right? With that they can turn off. Uh, like, let's talk about prime video. <laughs> and uh, like they've said in the past, like prime video really, you know, it doesn't do much in the U.S. market, but it, we've actually seen success for it, like in the international markets more where they don't have the, you know, logistics infrastructure that they do in the U.S. So that's another way to like hook more prime customers. But then Nirvan's point, they could probably, they should probably look uh, more um, closely at some of the foreign markets there. And I, I think Europe is a great place to be, uh, you know, but then you start looking at some of the more emerging markets there. And I mean, they spend a lot of money in India, like uh, that might be worth it, but maybe like some places in South America where there's already some uh, other e-commerce players or, you know, even in, in you know, uh, around the globe, like it's not worth it. So I think there's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there, right? Like, I don't think they needed to make a Lord of the Rings show that even though, like, I mean, like, I don't know if, it, you know, it, it seems like it's been bombed on social media, but like, I enjoy it. I, I've enjoyed the Lord of the Rings show, but they, do they need to spend that much money for just the, the, the IP on it alone was like mind boggling. And then the production costs were just even more, you know, um, there was an, somewhere I read and, and I'm, I'm going to mix up these numbers, but like where they talked about Game of Thrones being on HBO and how much like the production cost went up as the season ran because it's a very successful show. But in the first or second seasons, you know, the production costs were a lot lower. And like, in fact, like there's a, there's a few scenes, but if you watch that show, like there, there's about to be a big battle and then it just cuts to after the battle, you know, like the aftermath, they don't show the battle, you know, and like, you know, just the way you can kind of tell a story and, you know, maybe like tease viewers a little bit, but like, you know, keep costs down. And, uh, you know, one thing like Amazon could do is, is certainly like, look at some of these costs. I mean, the NFL uh, experiment, I actually think that might be successful. Like I think paying for live sports can actually be a smart move. They said like the, the, you know, the first broadcast of the first NFL game, that was like the the best numbers Prime's ever had in a three-hour period, you know? Like, I don't know what that means. That seems like a very cherry-picked stat, obviously. But, um, like, I, I think if we can draw, like, something like that could drive Prime numbers. Whereas a Lord of the Rings show, I, I just don't know who joins Prime to watch Lord of the Rings, you know? Um, so I just think there, yes, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit here. They seem like like every company right now. So we'll, we'll have to see how they do it. Um, but they seem like they're committed to going through this and, and cutting out like the extraneous costs that aren't worth it long term. And I think over the next several years, I don't think it's going to be immediate. Uh, I think a lot of stuff is already in the works. A lot of, pro, you know, high production shows on Amazon Prime, they've already signed the deals for it, but they're saying, look, we're, we're going to look at these and how they do. And if they're not going to do, if they're, if they're not going to drive the right numbers, we're, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to stop doing it. Um, and I just think that, 
the logistics like i that but that's something where i don't think they spend too much money like i, I just think like they will see real returns on that over time uh you know i could be wrong but i just I, people will always want things quicker people will always want things more convenient and i think they have a lot of pricing power in prime for us customers uh you know uh maybe not international customers as much I, I couldn't really speak to that, but I think a lot for U.S. customers, I think there's a lot of pricing power in Prime that they haven't exercised yet. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's like a lot of names that we've surely talked about today and even in the previous episodes, when, when companies are growing very significantly and, you know, things are going well, you can get a little bit lax on employee hiring and spending. And it's just kind of a natural, I don't, I don't think you can really knock companies when that happens. They're literally just trying to stay afloat and service customers to some extent. Um, you know, I think over time you test the logic on something like the content budget. Does five, 10, 20 billion dollars a year make sense? And obviously, this is for management to figure out. You can't do it as a as a minority shareholder. You just don't you simply don't have the information that's required. But you know, you look at some of the things you're spending on and think, is this our best use of, you know, not even just money, best use of time and focus as well? You know, kind of to your point or the point Bezos has made for a long time, cheaper, faster, you know, higher quality, you know, maybe maybe time spent focused on third-party listings and, and scam or fake listings is, is more pertinent than some other areas of focus like Alexa. But obviously they're navigating these challenges all the time. I just, it's one of those things that for me, I, I think it sometimes are notable. All right. So our next talk is going to be Tesla. But Anirban, before we get to Tesla, why don't you tell listeners about our seven investing service? Well, in seven investing, we have uh, seven stocks that we recommend each month. Uh, seven advisors put forward seven stocks, uh, released first of the month. There's follow-ups and updates of the stocks. If they, if the conviction changes on those stocks, there's a, you know, there'll be an update out, which would say either hold or sell. And uh, yeah, it's a way for uh, individuals to to look at a buffet of uh, stock ideas that come that cover, I would say, different areas, different markets, and allows people to build, you know, the portfolio that that suits their sort of risk tolerance levels and things like that. Excellent. So our next stock is going to be Tesla. Tesla is down forty eight percent this year. Its market cap was once approaching $1.25 trillion, is now under $600 billion. And near bond, is Tesla a record or a rebound? Oh, Tesla is the greatest company in the making, man. Oh, it's already the best company, but, uh, <laughs> uh, well, that's what I think. So, well, look, so there's a couple of things, you know, going on with Tesla. Um, there's no dearth of news on Tesla, which I think has a lot of impact on its, uh, I think, short-term share price movements. So um, one, one of them, I guess the most prominent one is uh, Musk's takeover of Twitter. That has meant that he has sold a bunch of Tesla shares, has meant that he is spending a lot of his time on Twitter, hiring and firing people, which is causing a lot of noise. And, you know, there's like constant news about what's happening or Twitter is going to die or he'll have to, you know, put more capital into Twitter and things like that. So, you know, basically distracted CEO of a company who's also CEO of several other companies. Uh, although he has said that he actually does not run the day-to-day operations at Neuralink or Boring Company, 
um, you know, and he's he's only spends a little bit of time at SpaceX these days. So, yeah. So I mean, you know, there's there's always a, there's a leadership issue. Uh, that's number one in the short term. The number two thing is um, a big market for uh, EVs is China, and there's uh, questions around the state of the Chinese consumer and whether or not you know they're going to be as buoyant as they have been in the past and whether or not that's going to result in as many you know ev sales in china um that's part of the part of the story here then um you know so there's all you know and then there's of course things like you know other short-term noise issues like you know are they going to hit the sort of target of delivering sort of you know 50 percent growth in in production this year and slightly under 50% growth in deliveries. Again, if China falls short, what happens? Uh, so all I would say is that all of these things look at, they're all short-term issues in my opinion, you know, whether it delivers 48% production or 48% delivery growth or 49% or 50% or 45%, that's almost immaterial if you're, a, at least for myself as a long-term investor, it's almost immaterial because what really matters is how much of the of the of the market is shifting towards EV, and and how much of that can Tesla capture? And there is right now really no competition in terms of at least at that the price range that Tesla is selling. It is by far and by you know by such a long margin the leader that it's just you know it's not even funny. so. So you know whether it's forty eight percent, forty five percent, it really should not matter as long as that leadership position is maintained. That's that's one. There's a lot of political issues in the underplay. You know, uh, Musk has sort of moved from being, you know, very vocal about politics, which is not very good for if you want to be, a, you know, CEO of a large public company. All of those things again adding a lot of noise uh, to the business. Uh, but at the same time, I think the business has actually been executing crazy well. It's one of the most well managed businesses in terms of. You know, when it comes to capital deployment, it is frugal as in terms of how it deploys capital. Earlier, you know, she had a chart early where you know you compared with uh, you know um, uh, DMP and with Apple. It's pretty high for an automaker this early in the journey, and that is just a demonstration of how good they are at capital allocation. So it's in terms of. All of those things, it's, it's uh, it, you know, you see this in this chart, for example, that you've just pulled up. So you look at the free cash flow that's been steadily rising, right? There was that, uh, that blip because of the COVID clo uh, closures in Shanghai. Then, you know, just look at the CapEx. The CapEx is relatively steady, you know, and it, it, this CapEx level actually would put a lot of the companies like Amazon and Google to shame. Like, I mean, what Tesla is able to do with CapEx is just phenomenal. So. You know, really prudent capital expert. The, the final the thing that I really think that is great of this company is that people, I think, discount the level of technology depth that they've got, whether it comes to, you know, especially when it comes to AI. It's not even thought of as an AI company, but I think this is the leading AI company today. When you think about those stuff that they're doing with uh, full self-driving, for example, the beta that they have out, uh, or their plans with, say, the robot and, and things like that. So I think even without any of those things, the current status quo looks very favorable to this company. They have two factories that are coming up and ramping up 
uh, uh, quite uh, quite quickly. And I guess the final point I would say there's a reason probably a lot of the free cash flow is coming from Shanghai. And until the factories at uh, at Berlin and Texas comes out, you could say that there is this, you know, you know, people think about multiples that they assign, and there might be a reason to assign a lower multiple to say free cash flow coming out of China because it's you know viewed as politically risky, right? I mean, if you do that, you should be assigning a lower multiple to uh, you know Taiwan Semi, which has got fabs, you know, in say China, or you know you should do the same thing to Apple, which has a huge presence, for example, in China. So so there's there's all sorts of things uh, there. But again, I think it's just the free cash flow growth story, the capex, and and sort of the investments that they're making um, that makes this a very interesting company to look at. Just great. To I only have, have I only have one question. It's just and it gets to what you kind of opened with is how significant is key man risk here? If Elon, for one reason or another, was not the CEO a year or two from now, would that be a major negative to the story, or is this business at a point where it's it can it it doesn't have to have him basically at the helm. So right now, I don't think it needs him at the helm. The uh, I mean, the company is set up. It's got really some really sharp people. I don't think he is managing really the day to day operations of this company um, in, in currently, right? And it's just executing on a vision. The the flip side though is that once if you lose a leader, like this is the hard. If you lose a leader like Elon and it completely disappears from the picture, it's hard to know whether or not it will remain the talent that it is, whether or not it would be able to attract the people that it attracts today. It is like, you know, Tesla and SpaceX are, are, are highly sought after by some of the top grants because it's the type of experience that you want if you're really ambitious. Um, so that's hard to say, but I don't think you need him uh, at the CEO level. In fact, in fact, from a stock point of view, it might actually be the thing that you want. You want somebody else to be CEO or at least CEO running the company. Maybe make the CFO the CEO because that guy is just so smooth and he just talks in the language and you know it's just the right language that you want. He doesn't call anybody a nut job and nut case and all of those <laughs> things. So, so, so maybe you need somebody, somebody to do the CEO. It would really be favorable to the company as long as you can retain in, uh, Musk in sort of the technical leadership role where sort of the product vision, you know, just you, you need someone who's going to okay a cyber truck because those sort of products, you need somebody who's a risk taker, who's going to say that is okay to do, right? And a lot of conventional CEOs are not. A lot of conventional leaders are going to say, oh, that is not okay to do because that doesn't look like a normal truck, you know? So I think that sort of, vision, I think, is is necessary, but I don't think you need him for running the company. I So for the longest time, like, well, I always admired Tesla as a company, right? To build a car company from the ground up just seems like, it seems like the craziest thing in the world. Like to even like suggest it like 10 years ago, right? It would be like, why in the world of all things, like when you try to start a new car company? But I thought it was like, just a complete bubble, right? As far as the stock goes. And I just didn't understand that at all. And um, until a really close friend bought one. And it's not that like the car was great. Like I expected that. I expected it to be a great car. Everything I'd read um, just said it was like fantastic. Uh, it was the uh, driving software package that he bought that cost about, I want to say like maybe $12,000 on top of what, you know, he could get for the car, like basic package. 
like, and I was like, wow, like, you know, I never thought of it as them like selling a $12,000 software package on top of the car uh, is, is, it seems like a much better business than just being a car business. Right. And, and you do see like how, and you know, if, if, if Tesla can keep this up, like just those kinds of margins like that, it can add on top of the car uh, and the kind of pricing power that comes out and the updates it can add to it uh, to make it even better. Uh, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive and quite an advantage over competitors. So one of the things that I by a small minority of people today, right? But, you know, and just to, you know, juxtapose, say Amazon, Amazon had $25 billion of negative free cash flow, whatever, last year. Tesla had positive nearly $10 billion of free cash flow. So, you know, I mean, there is, there's, a, there's, a, there's some contrast there. You know, that you, you'd not think that to be the case, but that is the case that here's a company that is very careful with cash management that generates so much free cash flow without actually having the software free cash flow. So in a way, if that software free cash flow that you're talking about happens, we just can't imagine that the margin this company is going to have. It's just going to be insane. Uh, the the margins there are going to be just unbelievably insane. So you know that's the upside to bat for. But even you know without that upside, the free cash flow itself tells a story. Any more comments or questions, Alex? I just think my favorite Elon quote is from John Hampton, uh, which when he said, you basically have a person who's a fraudster on one side and then a genius on the other side. And that's a very interesting mix of person. And that's me relaying his comment, not my own perception. I don't, I don't follow Elon closely enough to say he's a fraudster, but I thought that was a funny way to put it. <laughs> it does seem to have that, uh, that carnival spokesman, right? Like I, I, I think fraudster is, is too strong, at least for anything I've ever seen. But like, you know, he has that, he doesn't have a quiet personality. He has that like carnival spokesman, like sales, you know, job where, you know, he'll, he'll say things to get attention, almost, almost Trump-like in a way, you know, for a CEO. And, uh, but then he's also this like genius who lands rockets, you know, you know, after he launches them and, and makes an electric vehicle car company with a, you know, a self-driving software package. And, you know, I mean, just incredible, incredible credentials and resume. Yeah, like I've been mean, calling Elon fraud, right? I mean, you can call him fraud, but I mean, you know, uh, America is back in, into this because of Elon Musk, who's probably going to land in moon because of Elon Musk. They have an electric car company, the leader, because of Elon Musk. I mean, it's very rich. It is, I, I just don't get why, how these people, a lot of people, I would say, I call them the pen soldiers. A lot of pen soldiers who have never done anything actually in life, may, never built a thing. They claim Elon Musk is a fraud. It's like, I mean, you know, give him a break. How many things does he need to do before you stop calling him a fraud? You know, fraud people do not build great things. You, you no, know, yeah, I, I, you, I mean, I you do. You see the frauds like SBF, like with this FTX crypto stuff. That's yeah, a fraud, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a fraud. Elon yeah. certainly has a interesting personality, <laughs> an interesting way and, to, to yes. uh, he says bad things. He he says bad things. <laughs> he says politically incorrect things. He he behaves in a way that is probably not appropriate. All of those things, but the the, the but he's not a fraud. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. 
I'll tweet right, the link I'll, to I'll, I'll tweet I'll tweet the link to the Hampton pod and you can you can hear his words rather than my poorly worded uh summary of what he said. <laughs> All right, Alex, take us away. Our last stock we're gonna cover is Netflix. It is down right now 57% uh over the last year. Uh, it was down more than that, but like a lot of the other stocks we've looked at uh, this episode, it's, it's rebounded somewhat. Its market cap is now $131 billion. It was, you know, it, it, it was, you know, it, it was for a while, it was approaching $300 billion. So uh, Alex, is Netflix a, a record rebound? Yeah, I know we're short on time, so I'll run through this fairly quickly and I've written about it a bunch for anybody who wants to, to read more. Uh, go to the next slide, please. Yeah, so this just starts by showing the state of the industry in terms of uh, you know who's really making progress, who has scale, et cetera. You can see Netflix is a clear market leader. Disney Plus has made very significant gains in the in the three years that product's been live. Then you have uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, which is you know making more and more progress, but is still a relatively small player. Then you have Hulu, which is majority owned by Disney and and again also a relatively small player, U.S. only offering. Um, but it's it's an important part of Disney's bundle, I should say. Next slide. So the first slide was subscribers. Obviously, subscribers is, is just one important part of, of the equation. The other important part is ARPUs, um, how much you're generating per customer. As you can see here, Netflix run rate revenues are, are north of $30 billion. Disney, excluding Hulu Live, which is the MVPD, is right around $15 billion. Then you have uh, some other players in the industry that are quite a bit smaller, WBD and Paramount, and this doesn't include others like NBC Universal. So basically what you're seeing here is, you know, you have some players with significant scale, you have others who are, who are trying to get there. Um, and, you know, this is, in my mind, a very important metric in terms of who has the ability to invest and win in terms of a global game. Next slide. Yeah, this shows this shows Netflix's ARPUs effectively, how much they generate per subscriber. You know, it's funny that Netflix got painted with the the brush of just being a sub story for a long time. Uh, now we find ourselves in a position where you know, whereas many of the competitors of ARPUs in the five, six, seven dollar range, Netflix's global ARPUs with a much bigger international base than many of their competitors. You know, a lot of them lean towards uh, high income markets like the U.S. Despite that fact, Netflix's ARPUs are you know, effectively two times higher, which explains the, the revenue gap shown in the previous chart. So it just really speaks to the, the strength of the position they've built. And obviously we'll try to defend and grow from over time. Next slide. Yeah, and this just shows the, the geographic growth uh, for Netflix over the past uh, uh, three years. Um, and as you can see, international has been a very significant driver of sub, of sub gains. And, you know, I wrote an article, I think it was earlier this year, that basically broke Netflix into two separate businesses, domestic and international, and showed how, in my mind, that's the proper way to view the business, how to think about the maturity of the different businesses, the profitability of the different businesses, et cetera. Um, so, you know, just as part of the bigger story, again, it's, it's in my mind, it's a story of, of global scale and, and cementing your position as, um, you know, a, a service provider or a, an SVOD or VOD provider, I should say that is a really fundamental part of, of customers viewing experiences. And we see that in, with the Nielsen data in the US and, and we're getting more and more international data over time that, that shares a similar sentiment. So I believe that's gonna be a pretty strong position for Netflix and, and some of their competitors have a really tough hand as we look to the years ahead, which, which will likely mean either a shift in strategy with, with more licensing of content and less of you know, owned and operated D2C properties or in some cases it could mean organic you know, acquisitions or mergers. 
I went as quick as I could. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, how do you see this industry shaking out? Because I think that's the biggest question, right? Like if, if all, like with all these competitors, Paramount, Peacock, you know, HBO Max, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, right? There's just so many now. I feel like every new show comes out that I want to watch is on a different service and it drives me insane. So I'm trying to like now, like as a consumer, like I just try to rotate through the services, right? Like, and uh, there's, there's a couple, like I keep Disney Plus because there's a lot of stuff for the kids, but everything else I like, all right, I have Netflix now. Let me watch everything I want on Netflix for the next four or five months. And then I'm going to switch out and I want to go to HBO Max or, or wherever. Uh, but this can't keep up, right? Ha- it's, doesn't there have to be some consolidation at the end of this? Or like, how do you, like, how do you see this shaking out? Yeah, I certainly think ongoing consolidation would be the most logical route from here. Um, you know, I think there's an open question whether or not the regulatory environment is such that deals can get done. Um, you know, we, we typically talk about this in terms of big tech. I've been watching Microsoft ATVI closely for a while. I think people thought it was early on, you know, a deal that could get done. I've been fairly skeptical about that. And, you know, it's, it's looking questionable now. So, you know, could Disney go out and buy Warner Brothers Discovery outside of, you know, issues like, like issues of owning two broadcasters and things like that, just simply a deal of that size? Could it get across the finish line. I think there's reason to be skeptical. Um, at the same time, you can you can kind of get to a similar place if people decide that their D2C efforts have have no feasible path to to being successful and they can just revert to you know a Sony type model where they license content. And again, I think this is really instructive in terms of of Disney's approach over the past few years. And you know, I think anybody would objectively say amongst the amongst the pure play, you know, streaming companies, not Amazon or Apple. Disney's clearly number two has had the most success. And you look at the PL that it's required for them to get to here, and it's, you know, it's been $10 billion in cumulative operating losses in D2C, and they're not close to profitability yet. So it really speaks to how expensive this game is to play. And, you know, if you're one of the smaller players, you really have to ask yourself, how likely is it that we're going to win over time and how much is it going to cost and how long will it take? And I think the answer for most of them looks about as bad as it's ever looked. And the market sees and and the market sees that to be clear as well. <laughs> These stock prices have not done well, and and management's tone is, uh, I think it's even shifted from the quarterly calls to some of the conference events that that managers were at this week. It's, I think it's moving that quickly at this point. So we'll see if that leads to action, but uh, it's time will tell. And you run. Well, I just think as what Alex said, like, I think this industry is in flux and, you know, like the other thing that is we, you know, we forget is like, you know, this was supposed to solve a problem, but it's actually created another problem, right? You know, we went from, you know, saying that, you know, cable is charging too much to having all this flexibility to now having all these different platforms and everybody's charging you, like if everybody's charging you 15 bucks, how many of them can you actually have? Right. So this disaggregation <laughs> is in a way really bad. And uh, I, I again, I, like, I just don't think that many of these platforms that exist today in the shape and form that they do can exist over the long term because, you know, you can't continue fighting. I mean, there's a price point at which you can't get new users. 
and there is a price point at which you cannot, if you don't increase the price, you're not sustainable, right? And to produce new content, you need to potentially increase the price. Uh, what do you do? I, at some point, some of these things need to be gobbled up and be part of, you know, maybe larger, they need to be part of Prime or something Prime equivalent <laughs> to Apple be TV, what, whatever, yeah, or or whatever to be worthwhile uh, to um, to be you know to just be sort of a, you know that you know zero cost center you know or you know break even center so that you can drive other things based on that. But that's you know I, I think the story has really shifted from eyeballs. It's just, Alex said, it's no longer just about eyeballs, right? It's really about those dollars that are coming in, whether it's by ads or not. And it's a question about free cash flow again, I think. So, yeah, I, I really am yeah. uncertain about Netflix. Yeah, and I think, again, to your point, it's, it's if it's a free cash flow story now, I mean, Disney has just so clearly shown, if you're talking about getting to real scale globally, it's, it's not something you can do in 18 months. I mean, it's just simply, it's not feasible. Um, unless you, I mean, unless you were able to launch it at a very significant price point, which that is not feasible in terms of getting, you know, hundred million incremental subs, whatever it may be. So the yeah. path to get from A to B again, I think it's, it's funny. This all started as at the start of the year, this started as the Netflix kind of awakening. And now that we're closer to the end of the year, the, the story in my mind is actually completely flipped to this is the awakening for everybody who's not Netflix or, you know, maybe Disney as well. But even Disney is, you know, trading in terms of, hey, is DSC going to be profitable over time? So again, if, if Disney's being painted with that brush, if you're running Paramount, WBD, NBCU, it, that's just a very tough spot to be in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Peacock and whatnot else exists. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, one thing you know, one thing you don't have to worry about on the disaggregation. There's not too many people paying for peacock, peacock, so you don't have to include that in your uh, total consumer bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I just give you my example, right? So, like, you know, I've not cut Netflix for that occasional show, um, you know, and uh, it, it's partly because you know, and and I've got Amazon Prime largely because I want actually the Amazon Video. <laughs> So it's it's that, and I've got Apple TV Plus because I just have everything Apple. So I've got Apple TV Plus as a bundle. It just the Delta cost for me was, but I'm just not in a position to subscribe to one more because even after having three of them, it's just sometimes hard to find actually useful content to watch. So well, you only have so much time. Me too, right? Like that's the other yeah, that's the other thing. Like right? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of this content sounds great. I just you know, I don't. I have like maybe an hour, at most an hour and a half, like, you know, at night when it's right before bed, like I can devote to watching a, a TV show. And, uh, you know, as often as not, like I'll, I'll binge Seinfeld on Netflix as, you know, like any of these like new shows. I mean, you know, time is like a, a real competitor, you know, to, to all these businesses. Absolutely. Yeah, something yeah, I've written right. about a lot, just one final thing on the topic for me is, you know, I've written about this a lot, this idea of relative competitive advantages. And it's funny to see when you go through a cycle, the really painful periods, obviously, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, you know, you're still susceptible to stock price declines and or business headwinds. But, you know, cycles that are really tough, if you're in a strong relative competitive position are potentially a very, very good thing for you because they make life really, really difficult for your uh, less well-equipped peers. Um, since we're on this topic, I think this is maybe worthy of a 
you know, sort of slight detour, but while we were on this podcast, Mr. Musk has tweeted something very interesting. How do you make a small fortune in social media? You start out with a large one. <laughs> oh wow! So, so, so that that's the story. Anyway, yeah, isn't that a play on an old uh, Buffett quote about the airline industry or something? I feel like there's, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I think there's a play here. Yeah, play yeah. on something else. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's so so real quick, yeah. Alex. Uh, and we'll, let's end it on this. But Alex, if you had to make a guess or a prediction about who blinks first in this industry, like who goes back to like the Sony model, where they're just selling content to one of these other DT, DTC uh, providers. Like, who do you think that is? Is that Paramount? Is that Peacock? I think I think Paramount, I mean, there's been speculation about them considering other routes. Their commentary up until very recently would lead me to believe that even though they're very poorly positioned in my mind, that that they were willing to just be stubborn, even if it wasn't the most sensible thing to do. I think some of the CFO's comments at the, this most recent call suggested a pretty clear change in, in how they're at least communicating about this. And it probably speaks to, to the severity of the problem. Again, a lot of this is simply tied to how bad do pay TV numbers get in the short term? Because as things stand today, most of these businesses have, gener- have generally speaking, very significant cash generation from the linear side of the house. But that is going away and it's following significant changes in engagement that we've been tracking for many years now. So to the extent that worsens significantly, uh, to the extent people don't want to make decisions, they're eventually going to be forced to make decisions. And it, it seems like, I mean, Netflix or, or somebody else would pay a lot of money for Yellowstone and, you know, all those spinoffs they have going on now uh, for, for, for certain. Yeah, it could be an interesting structure to the deal. I think there's there's probably precedent in what in what 21st Century Fox did with Disney in terms of partitioning those assets. I think there might be something there that makes sense as as opposed to an outright sale. So we'll see. All right, excellent. Uh, well, everyone, thank you for joining us. Uh, again, my joined by my co-lead advisor, Anirbhan Mahanti, and Alex Morris, the creator of the TSOH Investment Research Service. We can all be found on Twitter. Uh, like I myself spend way too much time on that platform. So follow us on Twitter, uh, check out our services. I'm Matthew Cochran, uh, where it is our, at 7investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day.